Welcome to the podcast, History That Matters. In this episode, we will tackle the Haymarket Affair, the struggle for freedom. I'm at the Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois, standing in front of the Haymarket Martyrs Monument. This monument is dedicated to the labor movement and to those bodies who lie underneath it. On November 11th, 1887, one of the labor leaders mounted a scaffold with a white linen hood over his head. A noose was tightly secured around his neck. He declared, quote, when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today, end quote. A trap door dropped from under his feet, silencing him forever. Albert Parsons was just one of the four labor leaders that were hung that day. The story of the labor movement is the story of the unknown, the overlooked, the people that challenged America to live up to the principles of freedom. It is the story, as Parsons predicted, that still calls to us today. In front of the monument are union badges, rocks, candles, and even change. Where to start the narrative of the labor movement? In the path of a lightning bolt? Why not? Like the other songs I've played for History That Matters, Jake Bugg's Lightning Bolt captures the struggle that the labor movement encountered during what Mark Twain termed the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age is a historical period that starts from roughly 1870 to 1900 and is usually associated with enormous economic wealth as the United States industrialized shortly after the Civil War. You may have heard of people like well, maybe like Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Right, absolutely. Boy, are you smart. The wealthiest of these titans, or what historians term robber barons, John D. Rockefeller is believed to have accumulated more than $300 billion in today's currency, well over twice what Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, is worth. Well, to understand what happened at the Haymarket Square in Chicago, it is first necessary to outline the four pillars of the labor movement. Oh, goody. I love historical context of these podcasts. I do as well. Okay, let's deal with the, the pillars. Well, I might be able to guess them. I was a business major. Well, sure. Go right ahead. Let's see uh, number one. What are you thinking? Well, first, maybe the development of capitalism uh, using Adam Smith's wealth of nations or wealth of a nation as inspiration that book promoted laissez-faire and influenced people like alexander hamilton fantastic you are right it is important to acknowledge that capitalism failed to spring from the political ideology of the day democracy democracy pillar number two i have any ideas well thinking maybe demographics where and how people were living at the time correct 
Until around 1834, out of five Americans lived and worked on farms. Think of Abraham Lincoln. During his early years, land was wealth, not labor. What else? What about wage labor? Three for three, the trifecta. <laughs> when industrialist Francis Lowell opened up his first textile factory in 1823, he helped spark a revolution in how people worked. For the first time, many Americans worked by the hour. The demands for labor were so strong that women left the farm for the first time as well to work in factories like Lowell's. Even this wasn't enough, so Americans marketed those jobs overseas. By 1880s, uh, Chicago had over 450,000 foreign-born workers, about 40% of the total population of the city at the time. One of those foreign-born workers was my great-grandfather, Johann Allaire. Oh, cool. Yeah, who came from Gabernick, Germany. Can you make it four for four? Well, what about the industrialists? Wow, are you smart? Are you reading my mind? (laughs) I don't think so. Yes, men like Carnegie built factories that still boggle the mine. The steel mills in Pittsburgh that Carnegie built was larger than 80 football fields. Oh, my gosh. It is important to note that these industrials were feared by most workers at the time. So let's, uh, we've dealt with demographics and we've developed uh, capitalism and wage labor and the birth of industrialization. Uh, it's really time to now focus on three basic questions. Just three? Just three. Number one, why was Chicago the hub of the labor movement in the 19th century? Two, what really happened at the Haymarket Affair or Square? And what are the consequences of the Haymarket Affair? So there are many reasons why Chicago was the hub of the labor movement. Some of these are factories. Chicago had the Union Stockyards, Armor and Company, where they slaughtered pigs and cattle, Union Steel, McCormick Reaper Company, which produced farm implements, and the Pullman Car Company, just to mention a few. The Pullman Car Company was where they built railroad cars, including the famous sleeper car. In general, if you were a blue-collar worker, Chicago was a great place to get a job. There There were lots of them. That's probably why so many immigrants came to the city, huh? Yeah, I think so. Not only did Chicago produce goods, but the city was and still is the transportation mecca of the United States. Railroad tracks were the key to moving people and goods from all regions of the country to Chicago or through Chicago. As marketers like to say... Oh, location, location, location. Yes, correct. Moreover, companies like Pullman even employed workers to operate the uh, company cars throughout the whole country. Well, it seems like a no-brainer that the labor movement took hold in Chicago. You would think that, but had the workers been treated better, who knows? What are some of the issues that the workers faced? How much time do you have? Hmm. Yeah. That's a great question, by the way, though. Industrials, first of all, had a tremendous amount of power. Examples of their power are of the obvious economic power. Even when economic downturns happened, like the panic of 1873, some companies actually increased company profits. According to historian James Green, Armor Company, profits outpace wage increases by 10 to 1. 
Economic power was also demonstrated in their ability to influence the government and even the police. Marshall Field was known for his department stores, and the richest man in the city at the time funded things like land for federal forts. Fort Sheridan was a location that they funded so that the uh, soldiers could actually quickly uh, organize to address labor unrest. Uh, He helped purchase numerous um, different items, including uh, four 12-pound cannons, 296 Springfield rifles, numerous handguns, and even a Gatling gun, which is like a machine gun, for the police. At the time, the police actually had to purchase their own firearms. So he helped them out with that as well. When police were not enough, industrialists hired or created militias. The most famous of these was the Pinkertons. At the time, replacement workers, known as scabs, were even armed. Uh, Economic power went hand-in-hand with political power, both at the state and federal level. They also had social power. The press was really in the bag for the industrialists. Newspaper headlines uh, demonized labor. Here's a couple of examples. Hang them first and try them afterwards. Let us whip these Slavic wolves back to the European dens from which they issue, or in some way exterminate them. Ungrateful hyenas. They like to use, uh, you know, uh, animal analogies in some of these. Uh, John uh, Altgeld, the governor of Illinois, even admitted as much when he claimed, The laboring people found the prisons always open to receive them, but courts were practically closed to them. So they didn't have much legal recourse at all. Finally, industrialists controlled the work environment as well. They allowed children to work, and they had workers work 10 to 12-hour shifts. Wow. Knowing the odds against them, I'm really surprised the workers even fought back. Well, as the saying goes, you have the power if you have the numbers. Okay, I'm not sure that that's really a saying, (laughs) but you get my point. The ability to strike was undoubtedly the strongest tool the workers had. Between 1880 and 1900, they used it 14,000 times, in fact. Labor organizers also had their own press and trained their own militia. They believed their crusade would save the soul of America. They liked to quote founding fathers like Patrick Henry, who famously said, Oh, give me liberty or give me death. Right. All right, let's move on to question number two. What happened on May 4th, 1886 at the Haymarket Square? To deal with that question, we must rewind to May 1st. On that day, a general strike happened across the country. A general strike means that laborers from all industries went on strike. About 340,000 did so on that day. Up to 80,000 did so in Chicago alone. Well, that makes sense, given what you said earlier about how Chicago is the epicenter of the movement. What were they striking against? Boy, boy, where do I uh, really start with that? The workers' slogan probably says it all. Eight hours of work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. Yes, so the eight-hour workday. It should be noted that workers wanted the same pay within the eight hours. Although May 1st seemed like a turning point for the labor movement, things changed quickly. On May 3rd, two events helped trigger the Haymarket Affair. 
the first of these is really beyond the scope of this podcast. The second event happened at a place called Black Road. Sounds scary. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Here, August Spees, a labor leader, spoke at a labor rally just outside of what workers called Fort McCormick. These workers had, according to James Green, endured weeks of combat with industrial forces. Spees began speaking to the crowd in German. Before he finished, however, the factory bell sounded. As the workers heard this, they rushed to the factory to confront scabs. Spees urged the workers to stay, but without any luck. As he kept on speaking, he heard gunfire. Instead of running away, Spees actually ran towards the factory, where he saw about 200 police officers attacking strikers with clubs and guns. He was told that six strikers had been killed. He said to himself at the time, The battle is lost. Even with this assessment, Spees dashed to the labor newspaper and produced a leaflet that read, Working men to arms. Your masters sent out their bloodhounds. The police, they killed six of your brothers at McCormick. To arms, we call you to arms. And that will be key when the trial happens, those uh, last parts to arms. Wow, it really seems like things were getting out of hand. Yes, they were. So back to the question, what happened on May 4th? This is the most difficult of the questions. As historians know, there is very little about history that is facts-based. Historians or history, historians um, believe that it's based on a perspective. What seems most likely to have happened at the Haymarket Square is that after the incident at McCormick, both sides dug in. For example, workers felt emboldened as they demonstrated this. They demonstrated this by the fact that a, they, a committee met with Pullman workers at their corporate office that day and demanded an increase in wages and a reduction in hours. When Pullman refused, 3,000 workers went on strike. A dozen girls who worked at a hotel told their foreman they wanted to run, their, run it their own way. When he refused, they quit. Two other workers on the north side of the city, one of them, Louis Ling, were building bombs. Labor leaders announced a meeting at uh, Haymarket Square that night, May 4th. The police were also ready. 176 of them organized at Displane Street Station just blocks away from Haymarket Square. Ammunition was also sent to the police station with the order, Don't spare your powder. Yeah. So when Spees arrives for the rally, about 8.15, he noticed that little activity uh, was going on. So he jumped on a hay wagon to get things started. Spees was disappointed because the crowd was small and the location smelled like horse manure and rotten vegetables. Probably not a great place to speak at. <laughs> As Spees spoke in English, not his native language, the crowd began to grow. By the time his friend, Albert Parsons, came, about 3,000 people were at the rally. Parsons provided a histor uh, history lesson on the use of violence in the labor movement by the employers. As he spoke, one man stood out in the crowd, Carter Harrison, the mayor of the city of Chicago. Harrison walked to the police station and told Inspector Bonifield that the speakers were tame and there were no need for the police to take action. The mayor went back to the rally, mounted his horse, 
departed about 10 p.m. After the mayor left, a plainclothes detective heard another labor leader speak, declare, Keep your eye on the law. Throttle it. Kill it. These were provocative words. By this time, the rally was ending with only about 500 people still attending. As the speaker conclu- speakers concluded his remarks, the police arrived with firearms drawn. As the police moved in, an object came towards them. One policeman shouted, For God's sake, there is a shell. Meaning a bomb. Next thing people knew was that bullets were coming from every direction. The first to die was an officer, Matthias Deacon. Wow. So I've got a picture here. Can you describe this picture? It was actually published in Harper's Weekly. Um, well, it looks, I'm guessing I'm looking at a depiction of the Haymarket Affair. Um, there's a lot of chaos. There's police and um, civilians running around. There's a man standing up on a wagon. He's got his fist in the air. He's speaking or shouting. Um, and then I see a civilian in the front clearly um, shooting a gun at a police officer who's shooting back. And in the back of everything, there's an uh, explosion. There's definitely a bomb or something that's gone off. That's a great description. Well, it's not completely historically accurate. Hmm. What historians believe happened is that somebody from the labor movement threw a bomb at the police as they moved towards the rally. After this happened, the police began firing indiscriminately. Although the police claimed that the workers shot at them, most believed that the police did all the shooting. The results of this were that at least five civilians or workers died and 30 more were wounded. Another six police officers died as well, unfortunately, most likely from friendly fire. Oh, no. So the legal struggles after the Haymarket Affair are best summarized by historian James Green, who wrote, And so it ended on one of the most remarkable criminal trials that ever occurred in this country. Remarkable for its sheer drama and for the passionate interest it aroused among people all over America. Remarkable for the prosecution's unprecedented application of the conspiracy law. Remarkable for the quality of evidence used to convict seven men of murder. And remarkable for the way the proceedings and the verdict divided Americans along a fault line of class and nationality. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of consequences. Our last question deals with the consequences of the Haymarket Affair. And they can be grouped into two basic categories, short-term and long-term. Some of the short-term consequences are the hanging of four labor leaders on November 11, 1887, known as Black Friday. The hangings were especially gruesome given the fact that the four died of strangulation, not broken necks as, as intended. Louis Ling, who was also convicted, did not make it to the gallows. He committed suicide beforehand. The other three convicted labor leaders were later pardoned by the governor. So that's number one. Number two is the burial for the five at Forest Park Cemetery, where I started this podcast, was attended by over 200,000 people, which was extraordinary at the time because that was more than even Lincoln received in 1880. Uh, 1865 when his body came to Chicago from the East Coast. Newspaper coverage of this event was reported worldwide. Newspapers in America largely celebrated the verdicts. Hmm. 
Of the long-term consequences, the most important are the five became international martyrs. In Mexico, May 1st is celebrated as, as the day of the martyrs of the Chicago Haymarket Affair. Unlike other democratic governments, the United States does not have a political labor party. The eight-hour demand failed to take hold until 1938 during the Great Depression. In general, the long-term consequences are that the struggles between the have and the have-nots still continues today. There is one other consequence of the Haymarket Affair, one that I think is overlooked. It is that freedom is always in conflict. Both sides claimed it. Who is right? Who is wrong in this case? Well, that's probably for you, the listener, to determine. Well, it is time to turn the page to our next topic, the election of 1912, another historical event that matters. I want to thank Professor Brands and O'Donnell and especially James Green, whose book, Death in, uh, in the Haymarket, was a fantastic read. And, of course, I want to thank my partner in podcasting, Melissa Basinger, who was always has the right answers. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. And it was always a source of encouragement. As one historical figure said, Some people see things as they are and say, why? I dream of things that never were and say, why not? Nice Boston accent. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again. <laughs>